Imagine with me for a moment that you have just discovered an amazing passage in a thousand-year-old book that you've purchased in an antique bookshop. You've been told that some people revere the book, believing it to be inspired, but you cannot believe what you're reading. It speaks of the distant future and of a great nation across the sea that has built cities of giant towers and odd-shaped buildings. The nation is very prosperous, and its people are free. Other nations, however, are envious of its wealth and attack it with man-made birds. They fly into twin towers and cause them to crumble, and then into buildings with five sides that are nestled inside each other. Thousands of people in the buildings are killed. And people around the world looking into magic boxes actually watch it happen. Would it be possible for such a thing to have been written a thousand years before the fact? If you believe in prophecy, you have to say yes. And some would suggest that many amazing prophecies referring to current events in Israel and around the world can be found in the Bible today. Of course, many of those who have written books identifying such events and predicting the imminent fulfillment of specific prophecies have been proven wrong over the years. That is not to say, however, that prophecies made in the Bible have not been fulfilled in the past and won't continue to be fulfilled in the future. And that can be readily seen in the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ, both his first and second coming. One scholar has, in fact, identified 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament that had been literally fulfilled in Christ. The mathematical probability of that happening by chance has been calculated as one chance in 84, followed by 97 zeros. Now, not everyone finds that many prophecies because... Some are hidden in what we call types, people and events that prefigure other people and events yet to come. Much that was written about King David, for instance, prefigured things that would happen in the life of the son of David. But there are also many explicit prophecies in the Bible that you'd have to be intentionally blind to miss. And we come to one of them in our text for today, one that was unknowingly fulfilled by the soldiers at the cross. The text will lead us to this prophecy, and it opens with a glimpse at some unbelievable indifference on the part of the soldiers who actually crucified our Lord. We're in John chapter 19. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, 
took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now we're shocked. Shocked by the indifference of these soldiers. They had just nailed the Son of God to the cross. They had seen his anguish and pain, and he's still hanging there when they callously turned their attention to his clothes. Now, I do suppose we can understand their indifference if we really stop to think about it. If we had been assigned the duty of executing criminals day in and day out, no doubt we too would have grown calloused to what we're doing. I don't think anyone could do it without some kind of emotional disconnect. But still, it shocks us how quickly they forgot about the man on the cross and only thought about themselves and what they were going to get from him. But then again, the soldier's bonus for a crucifixion was the clothing of the one they crucified, and they didn't realize who he was, at least, at least not yet. Now later, after supernatural darkness on the earth for three hours, an earthquake, and seeing the way he died, the centurion would declare, truly, this was the Son of God. But for now, he was just a dying man who no longer had a need for his clothes. And the legionnaires had the right to take them. Apparently, Jesus had five articles of clothing, four of which were classified as outer garments. We can't be sure what they are or were, but scholars suggest they were most likely sandals, a turban or headdress, a girdle or sash that was folded to make pockets around his waist, and an outer robe. It's doubtful that any of them had much value, and they were most likely stained with blood. But the soldiers wanted them. And like so many today, they ignored the man on the cross in their quest for material goods. But they soon faced a dilemma. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. There were four soldiers, five articles of clothing. Whether they cast lots for the first four or not isn't clear. The other gospels simply say they divided the garments among themselves, casting lots. Now, John gives us more detail and focuses our attention on the fifth article of clothing, the one the King James Version calls a coat, but that's misleading. It was what the Greeks called a kiton, an undergarment or tunic that was worn next to the skin like a, like a big undershirt. Now, Jesus no doubt also wore a loincloth, but that wasn't really considered an article of clothing and it wasn't something the soldiers wanted. Anyway, John notes that Jesus' tunic was of unusual quality, being woven in one piece. Now, I can't imagine how that could be done, but I'm sure Bonnie could tell us. Some have suggested that 
John tells us this because the high priest wore a seamless tunic, and Jesus, of course, is the ultimate high priest. Legend also focuses on this tunic. The robe is a fictional story about the effect it had on the soldier who won it, as well as others. A much older legend says Mary wove this tunic for Jesus and gave it to him just before he began his ministry, which could explain the care with which it had been made. Whatever the case, it was seamless, and all the soldiers wanted it in one piece, so they cast lots for it. Unlike us, they had to gamble for the effects of the man on the cross. To us, they are freely given and available to all. But the soldiers decided to cast lots, to roll dice for the personal effects of the Savior, and in doing so, they fulfilled prophecy. John continues, that the scripture might be fulfilled, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And while all the gospel writers mention the soldiers casting lots for the clothing of Jesus, only John tells us why their doing so was so significant. It fulfilled the scripture. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, John is not suggesting that the soldiers intentionally did this to fulfill prophecy. They just did it because they wanted the tunic. But unbeknownst to them, they were fulfilling prophecy when they cast lots for the Savior's clothing. A prophecy that was made in a most remarkable psalm written by King David, the 22nd Psalm. Now we're going to take a detailed look at that amazing psalm this morning and look for as many prophetic details about the crucifixion of Jesus that we can find. Now I do have to admit not everyone sees prophecy here. One commentator actually wrote, because of the reference to Psalm 22 in the passion narrative of our Lord, it is tempting to treat this psalm as messianic, predicting our Lord's suffering. I think one would have to be blind to not treat this psalm as messianic. So let's focus our eyes and see what we see. The psalm begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that's very familiar to us because Jesus actually spoke those words from the cross. They are the fourth of what are commonly referred to as the last seven words of Jesus on the cross. Now Jesus may very well have been quoting David here. But his use of those words certainly expressed the cry of the one who felt abandoned on the cross. You know, there were obviously times when David felt forsaken, and he freely expressed it in the psalms that he, he wrote and that he sang. 
But the beauty of the Psalms is that we find comfort in quoting what he wrote when we feel the same way. That's what Jesus was doing here. But even something more is in play. Let's read on. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God. I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, admittedly, there is little here that specifically seems to point to Jesus on the cross, but it would certainly reflect his thoughts while hanging there. Let's continue. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You know, we find something very similar in the 27th chapter of Matthew. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their head and saying, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Matthew thought the behavior of those looking at Christ on the cross reflected what had been pictured in Psalm 22. Let's keep going. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Now again, that could apply to almost anyone. But couldn't it also foreshadow the virgin birth of Christ? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm sure Jesus felt like that on the cross. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou lay me in the dust of death. Now, the Apostle Paul spoke of being poured out as a drink offering. And at the Last Supper, Jesus said, the cup was his blood, which was poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And while hanging on the cross, Jesus' bones were no doubt pulled out of joint. And while there, he became so thirsty that he cried out, I thirst. It gets better. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, David may have felt as if lions and dogs were attacking him, but Jesus' hands and feet were actually pierced. Now, there is some debate 
about the Hebrew word translated pierced. But the Septuagint so translates it, and Christians have long interpreted it as such. And while it is never said that nails were used to secure Jesus to the cross, he did invite Thomas to reach out and touch his hands and told the disciples to look at his hands and his feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. John will tell us that none of Jesus' bones were broken, but his ribs were certainly visible to all as he hung on the cross, totally exposed to the onlookers. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. John makes it very clear that that was a prophecy concerning Christ and that it was fulfilled by the soldiers at the cross. The prayer for deliverance continues. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, and from the horns of the wild oxen, thou dost answer me. The answer to that prayer is pictured next. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. When he cried to him for help, he heard. God's answer to that prayer resulted in the people of God praising him and standing in awe of him. But more than the rescue of David from his enemies is in view here. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. What is it that God did to meet the eternal needs of everyone? What did he do that is remembered in all the ends of the earth and leads all families of the nations to worship before him? Nothing but the death and resurrection of Christ fulfills the picture painted here by the psalmist. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has 
performed it. David's prayers brought great blessings to the nation of Israel. But what Christ accomplished on the cross opens the door to eternal blessings to all people everywhere. Even the dead will bow before him. Whether King David knew it or not, he was predicting the death and resurrection of the son of David when he wrote this psalm. Nothing, nothing else fulfills the imagery of Psalm 22. One final fascinating detail. The last phrase, he has performed it, can be even better translated, it is finished. It is finished. The very words that Jesus cried from the cross before giving up his spirit. Wow. wow. This detailed picture of the death of Jesus was written by David under the inspiration of the Spirit of God 3,000 years ago. What Jesus did for you wasn't something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It was something that was foretold a thousand years before it happened. Anything that amazing demands a response. So what are you going to do with it? I trust you'll not be like the soldiers, indifferent to the man on the cross. I pray that you'll not gamble for the effects of the crucified Lord, but will receive them freely as gifts of his grace. May the prophetic pictures of the death and resurrection of Jesus cause you to stand in awe before your maker. And may the wonder of the cross draw us all nearer to the Savior who died there.